Good morning, church family. Uh, I hope that you all had a, a wonderful Thanksgiving uh, with your family in these um, very different times. Um, I'm particularly thankful for you, church family, uh, in this, in this uh, holiday uh, season. Uh, last Saturday, I received this text from our sister Shannon Crable. Many of you know her and Mike. And she said, not sure if you've gotten an update, but it seems that Mike's dad will likely die today from COVID. This is so crazy. We're still praying for a miracle, but planning for the worst. Mike and his sister will be leaving for Ohio in the morning. Um, Mike never got to see his dad alive. Um, earlier that week, Mike's dad passed away, or this week, from COVID. And many things have been hard in the midst of this pandemic, but one of the toughest things to endure has been losing someone you love, especially during COVID. How do you grieve and mourn the loss of somebody you love when you can't see them, when you can't be with them, when you can't be with each other? As you can imagine, it's been difficult and challenged for Mike and his entire family to somehow figure out how to grieve, how to mourn their loss well in the midst of this pandemic. But it was also in the midst of this pandemic, in the midst of this darkness, that there was a glimmer of light. You see, when Shannon texted me last Saturday morning, um, her text went on and ended with this. She said, in the midst, we are feeling very loved and cared for by our church. There's already food and phone calls and texts and offers for childcare. And then she said this, she said, we, Pastor Peter, have a beautiful community, beautiful church. And I just want to say, I am so proud of you, new community. You know, we are really at our best at times like this. You see, we understand that as the body, when somebody hurts, we all hurt. When somebody mourns, we all mourn with them. We carry each other's burdens. We take care of each other, you see, because we're family. That's what family does. So please continue to pray for and care for Mike's family. One of the hardest things about losing somebody you love is the feeling sometimes that other people move on with their lives and, and you think they forget what happened, but you never forget. It stays with you. So I want to just encourage you, church, will you check in on Mike and Shannon regularly? Continue to be the hands and feet of Christ to them, for as Paul says, in this way we'll fulfill the law of Christ. Um, we are continuing our series on spiritual warfare, the unseen battle. And I want to take you to a, a passage in, in Mark that I think encapsulates for us why we're talking about this. Mark chapter 3, verse 13. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. Verse 14, he appointed the twelve that they might be with him that they might, and that he might send them out to preach and, verse 15, to have authority to drive out demons. It's a very succinct description of what a disciple is, what discipleship is. And you notice, first and foremost, we are to be with him, then preach the gospel in word and deed and drive out demons. Now, first, the order is important, right? It all starts with us, what? Being with Jesus. 
Ministry must flow out of a deep anchor relationship with Jesus where you and I can hear the voice of our Heavenly Father saying to us, you are my beloved son, you're my beloved daughter in whom I take great pleasure. I delight in you. Claim that identity, Christian, again and again and again. But notice that part of following Jesus also involves what? He says authority to drive out demons. Power encounters, spiritual warfare, see? I don't know how we could talk about discipleship without realizing that that is a vital part of what it means to follow Jesus. So the Bible often describes the life of following Jesus using the language metaphor of warfare. Do you realize this is all over the New Testament? 2 Corinthians 10, chapter 10, verse 3. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight are not weapons of the world. Verse 4, on the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. I've been saying for weeks, the world is not a playground. It's a battlefield. There is a real enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy. The Christian life is a fight. It's a battle. To be born of God is to be made a citizen of the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God, Christian, is at war. Don't confuse this kingdom with paradise. Salvation is not re-entry into a paradise lost. It's enlistment in a war, an unseen battle against the powers and principalities, evil forces that wage war against you and me and the church. Um, as we continue this series, I, I just want to anchor us. I'm going to be real quick about these in these five truths, okay, that, that I've been talking about. But to sum it up, here are these truths that have gotten us to where we are today. Truth one, Satan is a defeated foe. Can I get an amen? Truth two, Jesus destroyed the works of the devil. Truth three, we are victors in Christ, so we don't fight for victory, but from victory. Truth four, we have the power and resources to resist Satan and demonic attacks. And truth five, we must put on the full armor of God to experience in daily living the victory that we already possess in Christ. And it's truth five that we have finally come to in Ephesians 6 that we spent last week and the next couple weeks on. So I want you to turn to that passage, Ephesians chapter 6. By the way, this is uh, one of my favorite Bibles. It's, uh, it's a Korean English Bible in the New International Version. I've, I've had this with me for years, so I'm not going to read in Korean today. i read in English, but I'm not one of them pastors these days. It's all like into hip technology, you know, I'm old school, man. I don't need a, uh, an iPad and a computer. Give me a Bible. Give me a big, fat Bible. All right, here we go. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Verse 13, therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. 
In addition to all this, verse 16, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Verse 17, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Verse 18, pray in the Spirit at all times on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for believers everywhere. This is the word of God. Now, so, so what we began last week then is we're talking about what, what then is the armor of God and, and, and when do we put it on, how do we use it? I got a text from someone this week. Been a Christian for 37 years and he said to me, I never understood what putting on the armor of God meant. Never discipled into that. You know, too many, too many things to keep track of and how do you put it on, so on and so forth. And, and last week we came across this foundational and yet such a clear truth. And that is what? What is the armor of God? It's what? It's Jesus. Jesus is the armor of God. All the pieces of armor are depictions of Jesus, right? So again, brief review from last week, because this is so paradigm shifting. Belt of truth, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Braceplate of righteousness, Jeremiah 23, 6, and this will be his name. The Lord is our righteousness. The boot of the gospel peace we'll talk about today. Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Shield of faith, Hebrews 12, 2, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Helmet of salvation, Matthew 1, 21, and she will have a son and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save Joshua, Yeshua. His people from their sins. That's literally his name. And the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. John 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was what? God. Putting on the armor is not some mechanical prayer that you and I pray when we're spiritually attacked. Putting on the armor of God is putting on the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And this concept, this truth, is all over the New Testament. Galatians 3.27, all have been united with Christ and baptism have Hello, put on Christ like putting on new clothes. Paul here is saying that the moment of salvation, the moment of conversion, you become united with Christ. You put on Christ. But it's not a one-time deal, is it, right? No, it's an ongoing thing that we do continually. Romans 13, 12. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. John 8, 12. Jesus says, I am the what? Light of the world. So verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Each piece of the armor, this is such a powerful visual, is a description of how we actively participate in the reality of having been clothed, of having put on Christ. So you see in one sense, you and I have put on Christ and we're never without armor. Isn't that beautiful truth? We, we have the armor of Christ on us. It doesn't magically disappear at night when we go to sleep. And so we were sort of unprotected until we get up in the morning and pray a prayer to put it back on. It's, it stays on you constantly. But in another sense, and this is why Paul says you need to put it on, put it on, put it on, is it's a visual of the characteristics and actions, though, of what a dynamic relationship empowered by the Holy Spirit looks like okay so we're going to talk about the rest of the metaphor in the next two weeks okay and 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 and, and today today we covered belt of truth I wish see see I could spend like 
a week, an entire week on one of these. But we can't, eh, you know, <laughs> yeah, some, some of you are like, amen, spend a week on it. And I, I'm unfortunately going to only be able to spend about 10 to 12 minutes on each of these, okay? Now, the metaphor of the armor comes from the armament of the Roman soldier, and you have the slide there, right? And the Roman soldiers were the fiercest fighters known to man at the time. So when Paul talks about the armor of God, the visual to see is a very familiar sight to his audience. So first, Paul says, what? Put on the belt of truth. Most important piece of armor. Why? It was a, a, a put on the last for a soldier, but Paul says the first to use. Now, the belt, as we talked about last week, was where all the various pieces of the armor was hung. And so it was critical. It was a critical defense to be able to battle. Now, why do we need to put on the belt of truth? Because our enemy's primary weapon is what? The lie he's a deceiver deception so we had this paradigm shifting truth last week which is what is the belt of truth we said what it is being honest and truthful with god with others with yourself putting on the belt of truth is nothing more nothing less than being honest and truthful with god with yourself and with others John 1, 1 John 1, 6 says, if we, have fellow, if we say we have fellowship with Jesus, while we pay attention to the action verbs, while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not, another action, practice the truth, verse 7. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Putting on the belt of truth is not just about knowing truth, scripture, word. We'll get to that, actually, when we talk about helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. But here, Paul says, it's not just about knowing truth, but it's living truth. It's walking in the light. It's being honest and truthful with God, with yourself, and with others. Can I ask you a question, church? Do you think truth is important? Listen, listen, I, I'm not being partisan here. This is, this is being said by a number of reliable sources. We have a president who's told over 25,000 lies while in office. Think about what that does to a culture and society. Think about what that does to our world. What that does to our world is not just that people don't know the difference between truth and lies. People stop caring about the difference between truth and lies. And in case you're going, whoa, yeah, the president, no, 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 let me, let me bring this home for you, see, because you and I are living a lie when you tell half-truths. We're living a lie when we pretend to be someone we're not. We're living a lie when we, you know, try and impress somebody by varying various masks. We are living a lie when we shade the truth a little bit so that we can save face. And when we live a lie, it leaves you wide open for demonic influence. Ironically, people lie to protect themselves. That's why Paul says, truth is our first line of defense. Truth is never an enemy. It's a liberating friend. 
Let me say that again. Truth is never an enemy. It's a liberating friend. You will know the truth and the truth will what? Set you free. Facing the truth is the first step in any recovery program. Satan dwells in the domain of shadows and secrets. God lives in the land of light and honesty. Bring your problem secrets out in the open. The moment you tell somebody, the moment it's brought under the light, that power, that stronghold is broken. Belt of truth. Secondly, Breastplate of righteousness. Breastplate of righteousness. Again, I wish I could spend an entire Sunday on this. Breastplate of righteousness. Righteousness. Breastplate was the soldier's body armor. You see that on the slide. It protected his vital organs, went from the waist up to his neck, especially the heart. It was made of leather with the metal such as bronze laid over the top. Let me ask you what question. Is it crucial for Christians to protect his spiritual vital organs, especially the heart? Is that important? It's critical. Why? Revelation 12 says that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Satan in Hebrew literally means the accuser. We talked about this. Satan tempts you just so that he can accuse you. So that he can come storming back and heap guilt and condemnation to come flooding into your heart. So Paul says in this battle, make sure that you protect, you guard your heart by putting on what? The breastplate of righteousness. Now, righteousness, right? you know, we're constantly unlearning things. Those of us that grew up in church, when we hear the word righteousness, we think holy or moral or ethical. And there is a sense in which that means that. But you are new community. You've been taught. You've been discipled. You know that righteousness is a covenantal concept. It has to do with right relationships, right? Sadaka from the summer. To be righteous is to be rightly related to God and to others. So then how do you put on the breastplate of righteousness? Check this out. It's by guarding and protecting your right, right relatedness with God and others. Let me say that again. To protect the present by breast of righteousness is to guard and to protect your right relatedness with God and with others. Now, here's the good news. You ready? The power to do that comes from standing firm in the truth that our righteousness or our right relatedness with the holy God was already accomplished, hello, on the cross at Calvary. Jesus lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. And when you place your faith in Christ, all the punishment that we are due is taken away having been born by him and all the honor that he is due for his righteous and perfect life is given to us as a gift and we are loved and treated by God as if we have done all the great things that Jesus Christ did. That's why Paul says, here's what you need to stand firm in, Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now, right now, if you're in Christ, now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ, if you have been clothed with Christ, if you have put on Christ, you stand right now, not tomorrow when you do better or next week when you, you know, right now and forever in God's eyes, totally blameless, perfect, holy and righteous. Is this good news? That truth doesn't give me license to sin. It gives me the motivation to obey. 
Transformation happens. Listen to me. Transformation happens when you begin to see you as God sees you, not as you see you. We're really good at seeing ourselves the way we see us, or the way our mom sees us, or the world sees us. Transformation begins to happen, though, when you and I begin to see ourselves as God sees us. That's why I've been saying for years, pray this prayer. Pray this prayer. God, help me to see me as what? As you see me, not as I see me. God, open my eyes to see myself as you see me, not as I see me. Because when I do that, I know that when you see me, I am righteous, I am perfect, I am blameless, and I am holy. That's who I am. Now Paul says, begin by standing firm in this unshakable truth. But then, check this out, we what? We participate in this reality of right relatedness with God. In other words, righteousness is something that we are given by God and something we are called to live into. We're given by God, but also called to live into. So, it means, first and foremost, you protect your right relatedness with God. Putting on the breastplate of righteousness is protecting your right relatedness with God accomplished by Christ. What does it mean? Well, first, it means things like this. Keep short accounts with God. Remember I talked about Psalm 139 last week? Search me, O God, and know me. See if there's any offensive way in me. By the way, we should be praying there every, every day. And when God shows you, confess right there and then. Keep short accounts with God. When you mess up, go to God. He's not some angry cosmic cop waiting to bash you. He is a loving father wanting to forgive, heal, and redeem you. Keep short accounts with God. That's what it means to be rightly related to God. Here's another. When God tells you to do something, to do something, do it. When God tells you to do something, do it. 1 John 2, 4, if someone claims I know God but doesn't obey God's commandments, that person is a liar and is not living in the truth. When God tells you, listen, listen, this is, you need to, when God tells you to do something and you hear it and you ignore it or you disobey, your ability to hear that voice gets dimmer and dimmer and dimmer. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. Be rightly related to God. When God tells you to do something, do it. Don't ignore that voice. Don't ignore that prompting of the Holy Spirit. Keep short accounts with God. Do what God says. But most importantly, it's as simple and profound as make sure that you don't take your relationship with God for granted. Come on, somebody. Don't ever think that you could coast with that. Man, there's a cosmic thief who wants to steal, kill, and destroy that relationship. Don't coast with that. You know what no person has ever said in the history of the world? We drifted into intimacy. No person walking on the face of the planet has ever uttered those words. We drifted into intimacy. It doesn't happen, but you know what happens a lot, though? We drifted apart. We just took each other for granted. We just stopped putting in effort. We just sort of drifted apart. That's why Jesus says in Revelation 3.20, Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens that door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. This verse has been used by, you know, evangelists to, you know, 
non-believers, hey, Jesus wants to... This is written to the church. This is written to Christians. It's an invitation, not to salvation, but to intimacy. Table fellowship, the most profound, intimate of all acts. It's Jesus saying, I just want to be with you. I just want you to abide in me, and me and you. Because apart from me, you can do nothing. Listen, what's been revolutionary for me in my walk with Jesus is, is, is realizing, listen, I, I, was, I, was, I was discipled and powerfully and thankfully into quiet time. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Some of you know, you're nodding your heads. Quiet time, you know. Quiet time is a beautiful discipline, and I am grateful for that. But here's the thing. Some of y'all are hung up with guilt and condemnation because you don't do your quiet time or haven't done your quiet time, so on and so forth. Well, the revolutionary thing for me came when I realized that the important thing is not about the first 15 minutes of the day. It's the next 23 hours and 45 minutes of the day. See, the point of quiet times is not for us to spend 15 minutes so we can check that off as having done something that we know God approves of. No, the whole point of spending time with God is not just to do it or check it off. The whole point of quiet times, I've come to realize, is that it brings our souls to this place, which is the most important place, that is, place of coming to an awareness of God's presence with us and in us every moment of our lives so that our lives are filled with contentment and joy and confidence in His unconditional love for us. Let me say that again. The whole goal of spiritual disciplines, prayer, word, quiet time devotions, is so that it would bring us to that place where we would become aware of God's presence with and in us so that our lives are filled with contentment and joy and confidence in His unconditional love for us. That's the whole goal of the Christian life. The challenge for me when I get up today, when I get, got up today and every morning, it's not, again, to do quiet times. The challenge for me has been, how many moments of my life today can I fill with the conscious awareness of and surrender to God's presence? It's paradigm shifting, isn't it? The whole goal is get up each morning and say, every day is a collection of moments. 86,400 seconds in a day. And you go, how many of those seconds can I live regardless of what I'm doing, with the conscious awareness of and surrender to his loving presence in my life. The goal is not to try to sin less. Some of us have been discipling that, you know, the whole goal is to fight and try not to sin. But in the whole time of trying not to sin, what are you focusing on? Sin. And it doesn't work. Make the aim Christian, to be with him, to focus on him, and to abide in him. The psalmist said, I have set the Lord always before me. And Paul says, I have, we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Set and take captive are active verbs, implying that you and I have a role to play in that. It's important to establish sacred rhythms. We talk about that a lot in our church, silence and solitude. Sacred space, sacred time. And again, the goal is not that I get something out of it. It is simply to be with the one who calls you his beloved. So guard your relationship with God. But also, 
Righteousness has this component where you are rightly related to others. So guard your relationship with others. Now, broadly speaking, this means this. We agree with God that people have unsurpassable value and worth. And that is the only opinion that we are allowed to have of them. Let me say that again. Any person made in the image of God has unsurpassable value and worth. And that is the only opinion that we are allowed to have of them. It's about treating God's image bearers with God-given dignity, worth, and worth that they deserve. And that happens when and only when we are rightly related to God. See, people will look different if you see them through the eyes of God. People will look different when you and I see them through the eyes of God. Because if I see you as God sees you, it will change how I respond to you. I will realize that you are someone that I'm supposed to fight for and not fight against. I need to say that again. You are someone that I'm supposed to fight for and not fight against. I will see you as someone God loved enough to send his son to die on your behalf. I'm no longer going to see you as the world sees you. That's why Paul says from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. When I'm centered with God, people don't look the same way. I see you as God sees you. But more specifically, it means don't take that relationship for granted. And don't think that you can coast with those relationships. Prioritize those relationships so that you are rightly related to them. Which means when conflicts arise, keep short accounts. Deal with things as quickly as possible. 2 Corinthians 2.10 Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Paul is talking about forgiving someone who has sinned against the church. When we talk about demonic activity, it's not exorcist or paranormal activity. We're talking about unforgiveness. We're talking about bitterness. We're talking about resentment. We're talking about anger. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 4, don't sin by letting anger control you, for anger gives foothold to the devil. Come on, come on, come on. Who are you angry towards? Who do you have a hard time forgiving? Who are you resentful towards? Will you consider the possibility that Satan is using that in your life to keep you from flourishing life that God intends? Will you think for a moment, think about the fact that it is broken, dysfunctional, toxic relationships that gives the enemy a foothold, which ultimately becomes a stronghold. I live by this maxim, love people when they least expect it and least deserve it. That is how you change someone's life forever. Love someone when they least expected and least deserve it because that's how you change someone's life forever. Now, I wish I could talk more about breastplate righteousness, but I got to go on, okay? We're going to cover one more today. Feet fitted with the gospel of peace. Feet fitted with the gospel of peace. Shoes were extremely important for a Roman soldier. As you can see on the slide, it wasn't just a, a, a shoe, but it was pulled all the way up to their knees. Soldiers travel long distance and their shoes allow them to move quickly. The last thing anybody wants to do is walk barefoot on hot, rocky, wet ground. So what does it mean to put on the sandal or a boot of gospel of peace? Well, the word gospel 
Man, I love preaching on this. The word gospel literally means what? Good news. Gospel literally means good news. And at that time, it had a very specific meaning. And we talk about this in our church. Gospel wasn't God. Jesus forgave me so I can go to heaven. No. A gospel was news of an objective history-changing event that changed everyone's situation, one that everybody needed to respond to. In the announcement, for example, the coronation of Augustus becoming emperor, a bulletin or news was sent out to the entire Roman Empire that read, this is the beginning of the gospel of Caesar Augustus. The gospel was just news that Caesar had ascended to the throne. And check this out. Heralds, they're called evangelists, were sent out declaring the gospel of the Caesar Augustus. The gospel of Caesar Augustus. The gospel, let's begin here, is news. It's not advice. It's not moral principles for a living. This is why Christianity is not like any other religion. At the heart of the Christian message is news of an event about something that's been done, not what you must do. Something has happened that's changed your status and course of history forever. News, not advice. But news of what? News of peace. And again, unlearning. Peace isn't just about personal peace. I have peace with God, although it's that. It's also the absence of conflict. The peace that Paul's talking about is what? We know a new community. Shalom. Shalom. Wholeness. Completeness. Universal flourishing where nothing is missing and nothing is broken. Every aspect of crush, uh, creation functioning the way Creator God intended. Rightly related to God. Rightly related to each other. And all of created order. And so the result is nothing missing. Nothing is broken. Peace is wholeness. Universal flourishing. Spiritually, yes. But physically, socially, in every possible way. And what did Jesus come to do? Come on, this is everything. What did Jesus come to accomplish? Do you remember? Colossians chapter 1, verse 19, For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, verse 20, and through Him to reconcile to Him all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. This is our mission. Reconciliation literally means to put back together so that nothing is missing and nothing is broken in our relationship with God, in our relationship with each other, and all of creation. See, the good news that Jesus Christ proclaiming is this. The good news is that through Christ, God's perfect, all-encompassing shalom has been unleashed into this world. Into this world of sin, death, and decay has come life, salvation, and hope. Into a world of darkness has come light. He has defeated Satan, sin, and death. Which means your sins could be forgiven. You could have a relationship with God. And the Spirit of God could come into your life and radically change you. There's hope for you and hope for the world. We could face anything in life. That is the good news. And man, those of us who believe that good news of peace... What are we called to do? What are we called to do? We're called to be his ambassadors of that reconciling peace. 2 Corinthians 5.18 All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are called to bear witness to that, Christian. A new king has ascended to the throne. And this king is bringing about a new order. Come on. Now, if this is true, and it is, I am staking my entire life on this truth, then we should all go running out, saying to anyone and everyone, rejoice, the king is triumph, right? To not take that news to every creature would be the ultimate in wickedness because it would be the most unloving thing possible. You know what it'd be like? It'd be like finding a cure for cancer and saying, you know what? I'm only going to keep this cure for me and my family. I'm going to heal them when they get sick. We're going to be fine, but, but, but I, don't, I don't want anyone else to know about it. That's what it would be like for us to know that Jesus Christ is not just some prophet who brings advice, but God who died and rose again, reigns over all creation, and coming back to judge the living and the dead and make all things new and not tell somebody about it. Come on, church. That's why Paul says, make sure that your feet is what? Fitted with the gospel of peace. What's he saying? Go tell it. Go declare it. Go live it. Go proclaim it. That's why Isaiah 52, 8 says, How beautiful on the mountains are the what? Feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, Your God reigns. And just as heralds, evangelists, brought news of a new king who was attended to the throne, ascended to the throne, you and I are charged by our King Jesus to go into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and ends of the earth, declaring that the kingdom of God has come in Jesus. We need to run out and say, hey world, guess what? Everything changed 2,000 years ago because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. A world without evil sin and death is on its way. And God accepts you, not on the basis of your past, but Christ's past. Not on the basis of what you've done, but what Christ has accomplished in history for you. And God is not holding your sins against you. He's embracing you even now. Will you accept that? Will you accept that? It's inviting people in on this beautiful kingdom. And it is our honor, it is our privilege to bear witness to this good news. Amen? Amen. So let me leave you with this. Practical application is this. Live for something bigger than just you. Live for something bigger than just you. Most people live their entire lives with no purpose greater than themselves or their loved ones. Their entire purpose in life, the thing that defines the sum total of who they are, is to live for themselves and for people they care about. And if you're living like that, Christian, you are much more vulnerable to the enemy's deception than if you are living with God-given purpose. In fact, if you're living like that, you're already living under deception because you aren't living as though you had a purpose that was greater than just you. And you'll believe all sorts of lies and you will not live the abundant life that Jesus talked about. And so what Paul's saying is this, if in contrast to that, if you and I live as ambassadors of reconciliation, 
If we live with the purpose and a mission that is bigger than ourselves, if we live with an awareness of what God is up to in the world, and if we live with an awareness that we have a role to play in that, that you and I, every single day we get up, God says, I have a kingdom assignment for you. That is divine protection against the deceptions of the enemy. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. There is no neutral zone in this battle. Come on, somebody. There is no neutral zone in this war. What we think is neutral zone is the deception zone, okay? The world is divided into two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And there are only two humanities in the world, those who serve the kingdom of light and those who serve the kingdom of darkness. Every square inch of creation is either claimed by God or counterclaimed by the enemy. You are either, listen, advancing God's kingdom priorities, kingdom purposes, and kingdom agenda on earth, or you are in your activity or inactivity helping Satan advance the kingdom of darkness. Every day that you and I get up and don't do anything to fight sin in us, sin in the world, and do not push back the forces of darkness and live with no purpose greater than just us, we are helping the kingdom of darkness. That's why Paul says in this war zone we live in, the safest place to be, listen Christian, in this war the safest place to be is on the front lines of the kingdom war. Let me say that again. It is on the front line of kingdom cause. The most dangerous place to be, the most dangerous place to be is back here where you're just living for yourself. You've been neutralized. You are living for no purpose greater than just you. Come on, somebody. Don't you feel most alive when you're living for a cause, a purpose bigger than just you? Come on, somebody, you need to be a part of a cause bigger than just living for your own happiness. Our greatest fear, I've been saying for years, should not be that we would fail, but that we would give our life for something that at the end of the day will not matter. What are you living for? What are you sacrificing for? What are you willing to die for, Christian? Am I talking to anybody that's hesitant to be sold out for Jesus? Because you think it's going to be too costly to be sold out for Jesus? I want to tell you the truth. And the truth is that it's too costly to not be sold out for Jesus. That's what's costing you everything in the abundant life and the experience of that abundant life that Jesus talked about. The life that only comes when you're on the front lines of kingdom cause and not back here where you're neutralized. Jesus, if you want to find life, what? Lose it for my sake. If you want to live, really live, then die to yourself and live for something bigger than just you. Then you will find the life you're looking for. Faithfulness is not holding down the fort. Faithfulness is storming the gates of hell. You and I are called to advance the kingdom, not hold fort. Advance the kingdom, not hold fort. Jesus didn't die on the cross just to keep you safe. He died and rose again to make you and me dangerous, a threat to the enemy in the unseen battle. He died so that you and I can make a difference for all of eternity.
feet fitted with the good news of peace. Bow your heads with me and pray. Come on, somebody. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to give you, I'm just going to give you just, just it's a couple minutes to, 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 to pray. And I want you to think about this as your eyes are closed, as you're praying. Every divine appointment is preceded by a season of preparation. Let me say that again. Every divine appointment is preceded by a season of preparation. Is your feet ready to share this good news? Is your feet ready to share this good news? God has prepared, Ephesians 2 tells us, good work in advance for you to do. God has prepared people for you to talk to, care for, reach out to, be Jesus to. But are you prepared? Have you put on your breastplate of righteousness? Are you rightly related to God and protecting that and guarding that? Are you rightly related to others? I am talking to somebody this morning who know for real, for real, for real that you have relationships that need repair. And you've been ignoring that voice of the Holy Spirit saying, you got to do something. Are you prepared for the good work that God has given you? Do you, do you see the work that God has given you? Pray with me, church. Heavenly Father, the long list of things for which we're grateful in this season, none surpasses the indescribable gift and boundless riches of the gospel of your grace. What we could never do for ourselves, you, Jesus, did for us. What we need more than anything else, you give us through our union with Christ. Thank you for putting an expiration date on every virus, every cancer, every illness, whether it be mental, emotional, physical. Healing and wholeness will not get the last word, not dying and death. Beauty wins, evil loses. Thank you for already placing the government of the entire cosmos squarely on your shoulders, those shoulders that bore the cross for us on Calvary now bear the joy of making all things new. As you open the eyes of Elisha's servant to see the hill covered with horses and chariots of fire, we ask you, Jesus, to show us more of you. Show us more of you. Show us more of you in the upcoming season of Advent. Because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. May your love drive out our fears, your peace rule in our hearts, and your grace guide what we see. May we see Jesus as sovereign over 
lingering regrets, unknown future, and present everything. We are never without our advocate, our intercessor, our armor. Legions of angels answer his bidding, and demons flee in your presence, Jesus. And during this entire season of Advent, may Jesus' beauty and love take our breath away. Then fill our lungs, Jesus, with the oxygen of grace. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins, release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth, thou art. Dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. In your powerful name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.